Welcome to this Uvula Audio presentation of Mission Moonfire by Jack Lancer. Volume 6. Chapter 16. Smell the Pretty Posy. Nutley's homely countenance beamed with goodwill. Chris, however, felt an urge to bash him in the face. The impulse was tinged with suspicion. Was it just a coincidence that this bore kept turning up at such awkward moments? Or was he something more sinister than an ex-police chief? Nutley, meanwhile, pulled up a chair without waiting for an invitation. With a wave of his hand, he bellowed to the waiter to bring him a gazoza, the orange-flavored drink that the boys had been sipping. Just left Ella over at the hotel, he explained. Thought I'd stretch my legs a bit and get some salt air. First thing you know, I spot you two birds. Yes, sirree, it's a small world. Come to think of it, we've never met your wife, have we, Mr. Nutley? Chris remarked. Irks the name, and by George, you're right. Maybe the four of us ought to make a dinner date. Or six, if you fellas can pick yourselves up a couple of dates. Turkish dates, get it? Ha! 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 He chuckled, winked, and jabbed his elbow into Chris's ribs. Chris mumbled something incoherent. Nutley gulped a swig of gazoza and went on talking. Yeah, Ellen me, we been seeing quite a bit of turkey. Took off last Wednesday, day after I met you two. We flew down to Ankara and then come back west to the coast. Believe me, we really had some adventures. The stopper was out now, and Nutley was off on another travel log. Chris wistfully fingered the long janissary knife, which they had taken from the man at Kane's apartment, playing a hunch. He suddenly whipped it out of the long, sheathed pocket inside his sport coat. The gesture was aimed at startling Nutley. Chris wanted to see his reaction. Years of experience on the Spring City Police Force, however, seemed to have made Nutley a hard man to discombobulate. He barely blinked an eyelash. "'Where'd you get that little number?' he inquired, pausing in his monologue. "'Here in Izmir. Ever seen one like it?' "'Yeah, just the other day.' Really? Whereabouts? Chris asked. Town called Konya. We stopped at it on the way here. Tourist guide took us to a dervish museum. You know, them whirling dervishes? Chris gave a startled nod. I saw a knife just like that there. I remember it on account of what happened. One of the sightseers picked it off the stand and drew the blade across his thumb. Testing it, I suppose, blamed fool. Must have been razor sharp, cause it drew blood. Very careless of him, Geronimo commented. Got him in trouble for touching it, too. Shouldn't touch something on display like that. Fella come over and give him quite a talking to later on. Chris sensed a clue. The curator? he asked. No, some other big Turk with a mustache. Geronimo caught Chris's eye and tapped his watch. Chris looked at his own timepiece. The big hand was close to eleven. 
Kane's secretary might be along at any moment. And what if the ex-police chief were indeed an enemy agent? Chris glanced helplessly at Geronimo. The Apache grinned. An old woman with a shawl over her head was coming along the quay, selling flowers to the cafe customers. The Indian beckoned her over and bought a rose and tucked it into his lapel. I didn't know that Injuns cared for flowers, Nutley said, looking peed at the interruption. Oh, yes, very much. I'm afraid you have quite a false picture of the American red man. As a matter of fact, we grow lovely prize roses back at the Mescalero Apache Agency. Chris coughed to keep from smiling. Jerry was setting Nutley up for the pretty posy bit. Inside both boys' coats was a tube running from the lapel to a rubber bulb in the inside pocket. Well, isn't that great? Geronimo smelled the rose. He held out his lapel invitingly. Nutley gave the Indian a puzzled frown, but bent forward politely to sniff. Geronimo squeezed the bulb and caught him full in the face with a spray of tranquilizer mist. Nutley's rugged features seemed to relax into a benign smile. Say, that smells real nice. Yes, sir. The words trailed off, and Herkimer Nutley settled back and gazed peacefully out at the bay. You could hardly get more tranquil than that, Chris remarked. Nutley seemed not to hear his words, or indeed anything at all. Moments later, a horse-drawn Landau reined to a halt near their table. A stunning blonde girl in a silky summer dress smiled at them from the open carriage. The boys got up quickly. You are Suna? Chris asked. She nodded. That's right. And you two are Wani Kingston and Tui Kingston, I think, right? Chris left a generous tip for the waiter and gave Nutley a pat. Cheery bye, Herc. You'll be your old talkative self again in no time. The boys climbed into the carriage. With a flick of his reins, the driver started the two horses. His back was turned to the passengers. Chris glanced at him, then at Suna. Is it okay to talk? Oh, yes. He has NATO clearance, the girl replied. In fact, he works for NATO security. Good. How long have you worked for Major Kane? About a year and a half. Have you ever heard him mention the name Purnell? Suna wrinkled her pretty forehead thoughtfully. Yes, once or twice in telephone conversations. Do you mean the Major was talking to someone named Purnell, or about him? Geronimo put in. To him? It was Purnell who called. American voice? Chris asked. Yes, I believe so. How long ago? The secretary shrugged uncertainly. Oh, within the last few weeks or months. But you've no idea who he is. Suna shook her head. I'm sorry, no. The horses clip-clopped briskly along the waterfront. At a traffic circle ahead loomed a magnificent statue of Ataturk on his charger, pointing seaward with his sword as if to say he had driven the invading Greeks that away. Their driver turned right at the circle and headed for the beautiful Kulchur Park. Did Cain ever speak of Sardis? Chris went on. The site of the ancient ruins? Well, yes. He even went out there several weeks ago. Do you know why? Chris asked eagerly. To sightsee, I suppose. He didn't say. Can you think of anything unusual about his behavior recently? Anything he said or did? Suna's dark brown eyes grew troubled. Once, before he left for Istanbul, he joked in a strange way about becoming rich. 
Seeing the look that passed between the two Americas, she added, But I'm sure Major Kane is no traitor, if that's what you're thinking. Let's hope you're right, Chris said grimly. As they lunched at the park, Chris made a point of jotting down the girl's phone number and address. In case I think of any more questions, he explained casually. Geronimo just gave him a poker-faced Indian stare. After escorting Suna home, the teenagers taxied back to their hotel. How are we going to kill the afternoon, fearless leader? Geronimo asked on the way. Go to Sardis. You read my smoke signals right, Chief Crazy Horse, but first we need transportation. With the help of the hotel tourist assistant, the boys managed to hire a Porsche and start for Sardis. The broad, modern highway ran eastward through the valley of Jadiz among the wheat fields, orchards, and vineyards. The site lay south of the highway where the Pactolus River rushes down from the mighty snow-capped range of Mount Timolus. The boys gazed around for a moment after stopping the car. Traces of the ancient citadel crowned a huddle of reddish cliffs, but the city had spread down over hundreds of acres. Along the highway and river were open excavations, revealing crumbled brick walls and terracotta water pipes. Here and there rose a few lonely marble columns. Golden Sardis, they called it, Chris said. Once it was the richest city in the world. The Apache grunted. Not much of it left now. No, but it must have been a swinging town while it lasted. That river was a regular Klondike. They panned gold from its sands. Only two tiny peasant villages survived from all the former greatness. One called Sart Mustafa near the river, and another to the north called Sart Mamut. Since the day was Sunday, no work was being done at the site. However, in Sart Mustafa, the boys found the man in charge of the current archaeological digging, an American university professor named Dr. Windish. Windish had his living quarters in a small stone farmhouse. He was a tall, bony, weather-beaten man with sun-bleached hair. Just before the boys came to talk to him, he'd been sorting out a heap of muddy artifacts on the table. On a hunch, Chris asked if one of the archaeologists was named Purnell. Windish looked at the teen agent sharply. Why, yes, Dr. Purnell is a member of our expedition. May I ask what you want of him? We'd like to speak to him, Chris said. I'm afraid that's impossible. Could you tell us the reason? Windish seemed to hesitate. Well, Dr. Purnell disappeared last Friday night. Disappeared? Chris was startled. How did that happen? We have no idea, Windish said curtly. He may have been kidnapped. All we know for certain is he was missing from his hut yesterday morning. Chris shot an excited glance at his pal before asking, Have you notified the authorities? Naturally, and the Turkish police are investigating. That's all I can tell you. Windish appeared reluctant to discuss the matter. You have no clues at all, Geronimo inquired. The archaeologist shrugged. Some of the peasants seem to think that a gang of, of night raiders carried him off, which sounds like nonsense to me. Are you friends of Purnell's? Well, not exactly, Chris said. But he knew an Air Force acquaintance of ours named Major Kane. Kane has disappeared too. I see. Winnish nodded and seemed to unbend slightly. That's very interesting. 
I recall now that Purnell did have an Air Force friend in Izmir, whom he visited once or twice. Well, we'll appreciate any information you can give us, Chris added hopefully. The archaeologist toyed with a piece of pottery. Purnell was talking over our radio phone a few days ago. I happened to come in just before he signed off and heard him say something about a crisis. Did you ask him about that? Chris inquired. In fact, I did. He seemed disturbed that I had overheard, but he said it was nothing. Chris continued. Dr. Windish, has a small figurine of a moon goddess been dug up here at Sardis recently? A moon goddess? I must say that's a rather odd question, but the answer is no. Oh, there are ruins of a temple of Artemis here, but that was built during the Greek period, when she was worshipped mostly as a nature goddess. It was only later that Artemis became identified with Selene, the moon goddess. That's when artists began to show her adorned with a crescent moon, right? Yes, although she didn't get the crescent from Selene. You see, here in Asia Minor, Artemis was blended with various Asiatic nature deities, such as the Cappadocian goddess Ma. It was from them she took the crescent. Dr. Windish went on talking for several minutes about nature goddesses and moon goddesses. Now that he was dealing with a more familiar subject, his manner became more friendly. Chris finally managed to steer the conversation back to Purnell's disappearance. This gang of raiders you mentioned, just what do the villagers say about them? Windish's face reddened irritably. The whole thing is quite ridiculous. They said that the raiders were ghosts. Ghosts clad in the uniforms of Janissaries. Chapter 17. Password in Blood Ghostly Janissaries again! Chris felt a tingle of excitement. Where do the peasants think these phantom raiders come from? He asked with a casual smile. Out of a gopher hole? Windish flung up his hands in disgust. Heaven knows, out of the groves we've disturbed, more likely, or down from the mountains. I don't suppose the question even occurs to them. But Dr. Purnell was no ghost. He couldn't just vanish into thin air. Chris persisted. What do you think happened to him? Carried off, as I told you. One of our diggers claims that the sound of the struggle woke him up. He peered out the window and saw Janissaries actually lugging Purnell away. And of course the troop was led by a rider on an iron-gray horse waving a scimitar. Demi Kerat? Chris asked, remembering the ghost horse Professor Cursell had mentioned. Demi Kerat, precisely. Windish beamed at Chris triumphantly. I see you've heard the old folk legends. In this case, they say his raider is someone called the Scimitar of Allah. Chris's eyes met Geronimo's as both boys suddenly remembered Spice's warning at the Seraglio restaurant and Murad's words, which she had overheard. The scimitar will cut down any American agents who get in our way. Windish went on. Believe me, these wild peasant yarns have been told for hundreds of years, and they'll still be telling them centuries from now. I, I assume you've heard these same ghostly janissaries have been seen in central Turkey? Of course, which only proves my point. In spite of his scoffing, positive manner, 
The archaeologist gave the uncomfortable impression of a man who was trying to convince himself. Getting back to Dr. Purnell, the police must be withholding the news of his disappearance, said Chris. It wasn't in the paper, and we heard nothing about it on the newscast. Windish nodded. I asked the police to say nothing for the time being till we were sure he hadn't gone off somewhere on his own. They were only too willing in order not to frighten tourists. He cleared his throat awkwardly. Any wild publicity, you see, would be most embarrassing to the University Foundation, which is financing our dig. So you have no idea what he was talking about when you heard him mention that word crisis over the radio? Chris asked. No idea at all. Perhaps I misunderstood him. The teen agents thanked Dr. Windish and returned to their car. On the way back to Izmir, they talked over the latest mystery. More ghosts, Geronimo grumbled. Looks as if we're up against another blank wall. Maybe not, Chris mused. I have a hunch we'll find the answer somewhere in central Turkey. That's where the Janissary spooks were first reported. That's an awful lot of territory, Chunde. But we have one definite lead, Chris went on. The Dervish Museum that Nutley told us about. Not to mention all those knives. They fit into the puzzle all right, Chris said. I think it's worth following up. When the boys arrived back in Izmir, Chris called Captain Lomax. He told the Air Force Intelligence Officer what they had learned at Sardis and then asked if they might borrow a helicopter from the U.S. forces attached to NATO. Does it have to be a copter? Lomax asked. That would be best, Chris said. We want to look in places that have no airstrips. And I take it you can handle a chopper? Affirmative. Okay, let me see what I can do for you. Lomax called back an hour later and told Chris he could pick up a military helicopter at 10 o'clock Monday morning at Sigley Airfield outside of Izmir. The craft would have its insignia painted over. We better prepare ourselves for anything, Chris said as they dressed the next morning. Okay, Chunde. Read the checklist. When every trick device was in place, including the sleeve grenades, the boys took off in their silver whirlybird and skimmed eastward, heading for the high inland plateau country of central Turkey. It was past two in the afternoon when they came down in the grassy airfield north of Konya. Chris, who was thumbing a guidebook as they taxied into the city, mentioned that this was where the Greek hero Perseus had cut off the head of the snake-haired Gorgon monster Medusa and mounted it on a pillar. The Apache grunted. Interesting, but not very helpful. Just thought you might like to know. It says here that's how the town got its ancient name. Iconium? That means city with an image. I'll file the information said Geronimo blandly. Konya was a pleasant city of whitewashed buildings and innumerable mosques. After lunching at a restaurant, the boys made their way to the Mevlana Museum through a maze of narrow streets. The building, set among roses, with its towers and domes tiled in glittering turquoise, struck even the impassive Geronimo with its beauty. This was home base where the whirling dervishes? he asked Chris. So the guidebook says, it was a dervish monastery and contains the tomb of Mevlana Saladini Rumi, the mystic poet who founded their order. Inside were magnificent works of Turkish art, 
and displays of carpets, cloth, books, manuscripts, and even old kitchen utensils used by the dervish monks. Not only Rumi, but many of his disciples were buried here, each tomb topped by a high woolen dervish cap. A tape recording filled the museum with an eerie wailing music. Presently, the teen Asians found the Janissaries Yatagan, which Nutley had mentioned. The knife was lying on a scarlet cushion, embroidered in gold, with an elaborate oriental design. Chris asked one of the curators about the history of the weapon. The knife was a recent gift, the curator said. Really? May I ask from whom? The donor preferred to remain anonymous. He gave a large bequest to the museum, asking only that the weapon be placed on exhibit here. It belonged to one of his ancestors, who was once an Aga, or commander of the Janissaries. Chris slowly drew out the Yatagan, which he had brought from Kane's apartment to Izmir. This one seems to be just like it. The curator examined the blade. It does indeed, sir. Even the same inscription. Geronimo's gaze roved keenly over the sightseers moving about the museum. He noticed a tall, dark, mustached man watching them with a look of furtive interest and alerted Chris and Apache. Big eyes over there on the left. Mustache. Chris returned the knife to his inside pocket without looking around. All at once, Nutley's story about the man cutting his thumb flicked through his mind. Was this the pass key for contacts? As the curator walked away, he picked up the museum yatagan from its cushion and drew the blade deliberately across his thumb. A thin line of red spurted out. Instantly, the mustached man approached. Chris's pulse quickened. Was his hunch about to pay off? Excuse me, sir, the man said in halting English. You look to be Americans, no? I am most interested in that knife you showed the curator. Could you tell me where you uh, obtained it, please? Chris studied the stranger for a moment without replying, then hissed in Turkish. Ay, yanior! The moon is on fire. A startled expression came over the man's face. Chris added urgently in the same tongue, I must see the scimitar at once. The stranger looked nervous. He hesitated and moistened his lips with his tongue. His eyes flicked back and forth, uncertainly between the two teenagers. Perhaps, Chris probed, I will find him in the Valley of the Moon Goddess? For a moment the man seemed to relax, but at Chris's final words his face suddenly hardened. In Turkish, he said, Go to Kesiri, wait there, at the mausoleum of Honat Hatan. He added with an ominous note in his voice, you will be contacted. Chapter 18 The Crescent Clue Without another word, the mustached man turned and walked away. As the boys watched him disappear among the throng at the museum, Chris translated what had been said. Sounds like you struck gold, Chunde, Geronimo muttered. Well, let's hope it's not fool's gold. What's our next move? Back to the airfield. We could talk on the way. Outside the building, the teen agents caught a taxi. As they drove off, Chris suddenly saw the mustached man again. He was watching from the blue-railed, colonnaded porch fronting the museum entrance. 
You think we can trust him on this Kaysiri setup? Geronimo asked. No, but we're going to have to chance it. We could be walking right into a trap. Too true, my friend, but it's our only lead, and you'll have to admit it looks like a hot one. Chris frowned and tugged his lower lip. Maybe we can cover ourselves a bit. How? We'll have to leave that to Lomax. The taxi dropped them at the airfield, where they refueled and prepared to take off again. Where is this place we're going? Geronimo asked as they poured over the flight chart. Kaysiri? It's a town northeast of here. Chris measured his position on the map. Not quite 250 kilometers, say 150 air miles. During the engine run-up, Chris detected a power drop on the left magneto. The boys had to check for the trouble. It was almost six o'clock before they were able to take off again. Once airborne, Chris contacted the NATO base at Izmir over the radio and managed to get through to Captain Lomax. In guarded language, he reported what had happened to the museum. We're going to have to play this by ear, Chris ended, and things could get sticky. Understood, Lomax responded. I'll see what I can do with this end. Good luck. Headwind slowed the copter's speed as they churned along through the waning daylight, guided by a ribbon of highway below. Northward, the broad expanse of Lake Tuz glinted in the red rays of the setting sun. To the south rose the steep foothills of the Taurus Mountains. Dusk was falling as they approached the town of Nevsehir. Chris, who had turned the controls over to his buddy, was studying the chart. There's a place up ahead called the Gorim Valley. Let's give it the once-over. The Indian assented. What's the angle? Just trying to outguess that guy at the museum. If I was reading him right, a valley, some valley, is a good place to look for the scimitar, only it's not called the Valley of the Moon Goddess. Well, that figures. But why this Gorim Valley? The place we're looking for, Chris explained, namely the gang's base, may be somewhere not too far from Kaysiri. And from what I've read, the Gorim Valley sounds like the perfect spot. It's a badland area. Also, it's right in the heart of the region that used to be called Cappadocia in ancient times. Okay, I bite. What's with Cappadocia? The crescent moon on Cain's goddess figure, remember? According to Dr. Windish, the crescent might indicate a Cappadocian goddess. The Apache looked doubtful. Seems like a long shot, Chunde. Still, what have we got to lose? The sky deepened in color from burnt orange and crimson to a glowing purplish-gray and finally black, but a bright moon picked out the terrain in sharp relief. Presently they sighted the Gorim Valley. Below lay an eerie lunar landscape of weird, unearthly beauty. Cones, pyramids, needle-like spires of eroded volcanic rock studded the valley floor. Geronimo gaped at the scene. It's like something from home in the southwest, only crazier. Like stone teepees, said Chris. The funny thing is, some of them are teepees. Do you mean people live in those rock formations, the way Indians do in Pueblos? In some places around the valley they do. That stuff is soft pumice. It carves really easily. Many of those cones and chimneys are honeycomb with caves. In old times, Christian monks and hermits used to hide out there. They even carved out churches inside 
and decorated them with frescoes. Geronimo slowed the helicopter until they were skimming slowly over the fantastic moonscape. Here and there were spires with odd-shaped overhanging caps. Apparently, the softer rock beneath had weathered away first, leaving a slab of harder rock balanced precariously on top. Chunde, the Indian exclaimed suddenly. What's the matter? Look over there, on the right. Geronimo maneuvered the chopper in that direction, and Chris saw a rock cone top of the slab in the almost perfect shape of a crescent. Hiawatha, my boy, you may have found something. Sure, a hunk of stone shaped like a crescent moon, but doesn't mean anything. Could be. That's a good-sized rock spire it's perched on. And remember our message from Professor Kersell. Find the valley where the temple of the moon goddess rises to the sky. Geronimo gave his partner a startled glance. You think that cone of rock may be a temple? It's possible. If men carved churches out of those rock formations, why not a temple? By this time, they had cruised on well past the moon-capped stone, and Geronimo prepared to circle back. Shall we land, then? he asked Chris. Definitely. But first, let's make a quick sweep of the valley before the moon clouds over, and let's see what else we can spot. Geronimo increased speed, and the copter resumed its skimming flight. Moments later, Chris saw a fiery flash and a brief streak of light. Hey, that looks like... His words broke off as a dull boom reached their ears. There was another flash and a streak, followed by the sound of another report. Somebody's firing at us, Chris cried. Geronimo gunned the engine, but Chris saw a third flash, and the chopper jolted violently as they heard the boom. We've been hit, Geronimo exclaimed. Chris's stomach was churning with fear and excitement. From the impact, the missile must have struck aft of the cabin. His eyes widened as he wrenched around to peer out of the canopy. It's a bazooka, shell, Jerry, and it's sticking right out of the fuselage. The shell was evidently a dud, but it might still explode at any second. It must have hit the oil tank. Geronimo pointed to the oil gauge. Both the pressure and temperature needles were in the red danger sectors of their dial. Once the engine seizes, Chunde, we're done for. We have to put her down now. The gunner was still firing, but the helicopter was arrowing fast toward the ground. Chris radioed Izmir frantically, his mind still on the shell. Would the shock of landing set it off? There was a jarring thump as Geronimo brought the craft down, but no explosion. Both boys leapt from the cabin. Come on, let's get out of here, Chris yelled. They sprinted off through the moonlit darkness. It was certain the enemy must have seen their chopper go down. Armed searchers might already be heading for the spot. I didn't know the natives were so hostile around here. Geronimo wisecracked as he ran. Well, a hundred to one, it's the Scimitar gang, Chris shouted. For the next few moments, the teenagers saved their breath for running. They paused as they reached a sheltering cluster of rock spires. Now what? Geronimo panted. Let's head back toward that crescent rock you saw. At least that'll take us in the opposite direction from the Bazooka Boys. Half an hour of torturous trekking brought them back to the upthrusting crescent-capped tower of rock that they had seen from the air. From the ground, the shape of the cap 
was almost unnoticeable. Both Chris and Geronimo might have missed it if they hadn't fixed the sight in mine. You said these rock cones were hollowed out, the Apache asked, gazing up at the formation. Some, if they've been inhabited. Doesn't look as if this one is, unless there's an underground entrance. The boys clambered around the cone, seeking an opening, but they saw only blank rock, until Geronimo's foot dislodged a boulder and sent it rolling down the incline. Koya chunde! I found a hole! The aperture was big enough to admit a man. Geronimo then Chris squirmed through and switched on their pocket flashlights. At once they sensed they were in an ancient crypt, undisturbed for centuries. Three shallow stone steps led upward. The boys climbed the steps and found themselves in a round, domed chamber with four supporting columns hewn from the soft rock. Their flashlight beams played around the room and came to rest on a niche in the far wall. In the recess stood a moon goddess figure with a crescent crown, a life-size replica of Cain's figurine. The boys walked closer, breathless with awe. Lettering was carved around the base of the statue. Chris knit his brows as he studied the ancient characters. That crisis Purnell was talking about? He gasped. Jerry, I think I've solved part of the mystery. Chapter 19. Target Tonight. Great, I can use a little good news, said Geronimo. But how does that inscription explain the crisis Purnell was talking about? If I'm right, Chris replied, there was no crisis. He was saying, Crasus, the richest king of olden times. Crasus had all that river gold at Sardis flowing right down to his doorstep, remember? Well, he was finally knocked off by the king of Persia, and Sardis was taken by storm. But no one ever knew what happened to his treasure. Chris paused dramatically. That is, up until now... Geronimo's eyes widened. Are you trying to tell me that we've stumbled on it? You know it, boy. What's more, I have a hunch that's what Cain and Purnell were after. But we've beaten them to the punch. Never mind them. Where is this treasure? Stashed away in this temple. Give me a little time here, said Chris. Takes a while to decipher this gobbledygook. So far, all I've got is... I, Crasus king of Lydia, offers sacrifice to the goddess Ma, who is one with Artemis and Cybele, and give unto her protection all the treasure of golden Sardis. Are you reading that or making it up? Listen, you cigar store Indian. You're talking to a linguistics major. It's all down here in two languages. One is in classical Greek. That's duck soup. The other is Lydian, which is a lot tougher. In fact, only a few experts like Professor Cursell can translate it. And Lydian's the lingo you thought you saw in Cain's moon goddess? Geronimo asked. You know it, Jerry. I'll bet that's why Cain was consulting the professor, to get a reading on the inscription on the figurine. Could be. Get on with your own translation. Chris found himself perspiring with excitement as he poured over the ancient Greek lettering. Finally, he turned to his pal. Okay, here's the picture. 
When the Persians went on the warpath, Croesus marched east into Cappadocia to fight them, and he brought his treasure along. This is where he cashed it for safekeeping before the battle. I guess he wanted to keep the loot out of the Persians' hands, even if he lost. And it turned out he did lose. Not right away. The first battle was a draw, I think. Then, Croesus went back to Sardis, and that's where they finally clobbered him. The Apache growled impatiently. Then how do we know his bundle's still here? He may have carted it back to Sardis with him. Maybe, but it doesn't sound that way. Chris read, Here may my treasure remain until mine enemies taste death and the moon turns. The moon turns? Geronimo gave Chris a puzzled stare. I don't get it. There was a baffled silence as the boys studied the statue. Both exclaimed as the same idea struck them. Her crown! Geronimo gasped. He reached up and twisted the crescent moon atop the goddess's head. It turned like a handle or lever. Slowly, the top of the pedestal moved backwards, carrying the figure with it, revealing a large hollow space beneath. Chris shone his flashlight inside, and the teen agents gasped in awe. The compartment was crammed with gleaming coins, ornaments, and jewels. Chris plunged a hand into the treasure trove and held one of the coins up to his flashlight. It bore the same lion and bull device they had seen on the bronze plaque at Cain's apartment, the royal emblem of the kings of Lydia. Before either boy could speak, faint barking and baying reached their ears. Chris let the coin drop as they jerked around, closed the treasure cache, and darted back to the stone steps. Now the baying grew louder, mingled with the staccato sound of horses' hooves. Chris turned and shone his flashlight beam around the chamber. Any place we could hide? Not a chance if those dogs get our scent. The boys drew their anesthetic pens. In moments, they could hear their pursuers running to a halt amid a chorus of bloodthirsty growls. A huge hound charged through the temple opening. Others surged at his heels. Chris dropped the first one with a sleepy sliver, and Geronimo dropped the one just behind. The rest drew back snarling at a shout of command as the teen agents waited tensely. Come out with your hands up! You will not be harmed! A voice bellowed in English. Chris and Geronimo looked at each other, racking their brains for a way of escape. Their pens would be of little help in fighting their way out. More than likely, any attempt would be greeted with a hail of gunfire. Pomeroy's sleeve grenades seemed equally useless. The lights-out model was not an anti-personnel weapon. And if a curfew grenade was fired to explode among the enemy outside, its anesthetic vapor was bound to seep in and affect the boys as well. Moments went by. Suddenly a bundle of burning brush was hurled through the opening. And then more. They're going to smoke us out, Geronimo muttered. The brush had landed at the foot of the stone steps leaving no way for the boys to extinguish it without exposing themselves. The teenagers began ripping open their neckties to form emergency gas masks from the special filter material contained in the lining. You in there, the voice shouted again. I am giving you one last chance. If you wish mercy, come out with your hands on your heads. But decide quickly, 
Soon we will begin blocking up the opening and entomb you inside forever. The boys exchanged looks of desperation. I guess this is it, Jerry, Chris gritted. Come on, at least we'll have more chance on the outside than we do in here. The Apache nodded. Chris led the way down the stone steps, worming past the still smoldering brush. They emerged from the temple. A strange sight greeted their smoke-bleared eyes in the moonlit darkness. A troop of phantom horsemen were ranged about the rock formation, the hounds whining and trembling with eagerness at their stirrups. Only a word was needed, it seemed, to set the beasts at the boys' throats. The riders were uniformed like warriors of the old Turkish sultans, with the high, odd-shaped janissary headdresses, their faces were ghastly white with makeup. Each carried a carbine at the ready and a cutthroat yatagan thrust in his waist sash. Most imposing of all was the leader, a black-bearded, slant-eyed giant of a man on an iron-gray horse. His curved, murderous-looking blade glittered in the moonlight. "'So, you're the scimitar,' said Chris. "'Yvette, and you two are the young American fools,' who learned how members of our brotherhood contact one another at the Mevlana Museum. You even tried to pass yourselves off as true believers. We've been trying to find you, Chris said. We want to join your brotherhood. The slant-eyed man roared with laughter. Then he said sarcastically, We've been equally interested in your activities ever since you were seen in Istanbul at Professor Kersel's apartment and Hamid's shop. Well, now you know why we're here, said Geronimo. And soon you will know much more, this I promise you. The scimitar growled in order and several of his janissaries dismounted. They slapped the boys' chest, sides, and waists in a rough frisk for weapons, and then turned out their pockets. After the teenagers' wrists had been tied behind their backs, they were hoisted into the saddles of two extra horses. Each was roped to his mount, and then, at the leader's command, the troops started off with a clatter of hooves. They rode hard across the Badlands, skirting their way around the weird volcanic formations. In twenty minutes they came to a sprawling cluster of spires and cones. Passing single file between two of the rock towers, they were saluted by armed guards. Inside was a broad clearing where several vehicles were parked and horses stood tethered. Evidently, all the cones had been hollowed out for living quarters. Lights gleamed from their openings, and the hum of generators was audible. As the boys were being taken off their horses, a stooped, skinny man stepped into view. He looked incredibly old. His shrunken face, pug-nosed and skull-like, wore a monocle clamped in one bony eye socket. He stared at the prisoners in silence. His gaze finally settled on Chris. A dry, rasping noise that might have been a chuckle or a death rattle came from his throat. Ach, the spy who invaded my villa at Istanbul, is it not? Chris stared back in horrified fascination. Dr. Tote, or should I say Dr. Death? Quite correct, and you no doubt an agent of the American CIA, like that Schweinhund Vogel, nicht wahr? 
When Chris made no reply, Tote's deep-sucking eyes swung to Geronimo and back again. Speak, Abdal! Chris felt the scimitar's blade across his throat. What am I supposed to do? If I say no, you won't believe me anyway. Tote emitted another ghastly chuckle. In time, even the most stubborn can be made to talk. Time is precious, Dr. Bay, the scimitar said. These two may have radioed from their helicopter before they were shot down. It would be best to proceed at once with our plan. Tote inclined his head. All is ready. You only have to give the word, Kilik Aslan. Kilik Aslan, Chris echoed, recognizing the name of a line of sultans of the fierce Seljuk Turks who had swept down from Asia. The lion sort himself, huh? The scimitar's slant eyes glittered approvingly. You are acquainted with our Turkish history, I see, but I am also known as the scimitar of Allah, he who is destined to restore the great Turkish empire. Quite a large order. I suppose that's why you've raised this band of thugs and assassins, your so-called brotherhood? Of course. My men are trained to kill or destroy to my command, regardless of risk to their own lives. Already, they have struck terror throughout the world. Their services are for hire, you see, to any group or political plotters able to pay our price, and the money goes into our treasury to finance the next stage of our movement. Then the drug and those worry beats they carry must be quite a help, I suppose. Aslan's black beard parted in a toothy grin. Ah, so you know of that too. It was formulated by Dr. Tote, needless to say. But that is only a small part of his aid to our cause. Actually, the doctor's technical genius has been led to a far more important purpose. Chris's eyebrows lifted. Which is? Aslan's smile became more sinister. You have heard our cry, no doubt. The moon is on fire. Let me show you what that stands for. With Dr. Tote, he escorted the boys toward the largest of the surrounding rock cones. As you may know, Tote told the prisoners, many of these formations have been carved or shaped by nature into hollow chimneys. From their inner central shaft, living spaces were often hewn out at a number of levels. It was Kilik Aslan's brilliant idea to use one as a sort of natural gantry. Gantry? Chris gaped in disbelief as Tote led the way through the entrance of the cone. Inside, a sleek missile loomed in deadly grandeur, its nose poised ten feet below the cap of hollow rock. From overhead came the sounds of men at work on the monster. Chris and Geronimo looked dumbfounded as Aslan said boastfully, We have been assembling this for more than a year, with materials obtained through the doctor's associates at Toad. My followers believe it to be a moon rocket, which soon will demonstrate to the world the rebirth of Turkish power. Oh? And so what is it really? Chris asked. An oversized rocket piggy bank? Aslan's teeth gleamed menacingly. You may find the truth less amusing. This is a ballistic missile with an atomic warhead, which will be fired tonight across the border into Russia. The Russians will assume it was launched from an American missile base in Turkey and will retaliate. Can you imagine the nuclear holocaust? 
The scimitar threw back his head and roared with laughter. Both America and Russia will be wiped out in a storm of blood and fire. Chapter 20 Badland Blastoff An atomic rocket? The teenage stared aghast at the scimitar's threat. You can't be serious, Chris said huskily. Deadly serious, I assure you, Dr. Tote replied. But why? What good is that going to do? Surely the answer is obvious, Aslan mocked. With America and Russia blasted to ruins, the way will be open for Turkey and the Orient to rule the world. The scimitar's eyes blazed. Do not forget, we Turks came from Central Asia. It is eastward we must look to reassert our great destiny. And I, Kilik, Aslan, the Lion Sword, will lead the way. You are completely out of your mind, Chris said. Turks chose the free world of the West a long time ago. You fool! Aslan broke into a wild laugh. My people will follow the scimitar of Allah. And suppose your own country gets wiped out in the atomic crossfire? Geronimo asked. No danger of that. Russia's counter-strike on Turkey will be limited to the American missile bases near the border. The main bombs will be aimed at Washington and other American cities. Chris turned desperately to Tote. Where do you fit into all this? You're not Turkish. Quite so, the skull face gloated. But it was your country and Russia which crushed the Nazi Reich. Now, at long last, I shall have my revenge. It's useless, Chunde, Geronimo muttered in Apache. They're both crazy. Tote walked to a wall phone and issued orders for the countdown over a loudspeaker. Chris's brain worked frantically. If only he could buy some time somehow. There was a chance that Lomax might have directed police or military units to the valley. How long is your countdown? he asked Tote. No more than an hour. Our trajectory requires only the crudest accuracy, and I have eliminated all unnecessary circuitry to keep our launch simple. The rocket is designed for solid fuel, which is already aboard. Then maybe you'd like to answer a question? About what? The treasure of the moon goddess. Ah, so you found out about that, huh? Yes, it was Major Kane's moon goddess figurine that clued us in. Of course. Tote nodded thoughtfully. I wondered how much you might have learned. Well, the answer is plenty. Do you know that the treasure is hidden here in the Gorim Valley? This time, Tote was surprised. So, we're on the same track, it seems. But the real question is where, hmm? The valley is a large place, 43 miles long. How did you know that the treasure was here? Geronimo prodded. Tote seemed eager to talk. I became interested in Turkish archaeology during my work for His Excellency, Kilik Aslan, he said. One of his janissaries uncovered an old tablet with a curious inscription, which I could only partly decipher. Then one day in Istanbul, I showed it to Turhan Hamid, a member of the Moonfire Brotherhood. Unfortunately, I was seen at his shop by one of Vogel's agents. 
But that is another story. Hamid directed me to Professor Cursell. And the professor translated the tablet? Yeah. It indicated that Croesus had buried a great treasure somewhere in the valley before his battle with the Persians, but no precise location was given. Chris said, Then you found out Major Kane was also after the treasure. Tote nodded. Hamid met Kane by chance one night at a certain dervish restaurant on Istanbul, which is a local headquarters for the Brotherhood. Cain made the mistake of talking too much and even showed Hamid the goddess figure. With the result, Chris put in, the two Janissaries attacked him while he was leaving Professor Cursell's apartment later that night. Quite so, but he escaped with the aid of two Americans. What about that knife that was thrown at the restaurant? Was that meant for Cain or me? Merely a threat to Cain. As a result, he was easily, shall I say, persuaded to come to my villa and talk business. I take it that he didn't realize you were Dr. Death, Chris said. Nein, the fool knew nothing of my real identity. I offered to join forces with him, only to find out how much he knew about the treasure, you understand. His moon goddess figure, however, also failed to give its exact location. But you had him and Dr. Purnell kidnapped anyway, and brought here, I presume? Of course. Why should I take the chance of them finding the treasure on their own? Besides, Cain was dangerous to me once you had seen us together at the villa. What about the janissary who tried to raid our hotel room? Put in Geronimo. Hamid warned me that you two came to his shop, asking about the moon goddess figure. So one of our men trailed you to the hotel from the girl Saint's apartment. He was told to search your room and find out why you were in Istanbul. If possible, perhaps frighten you off the scent. But it seems you did not scare easily. Does Professor Cursell know you're Dr. Tote? Unfortunately, yeah. My face, I feel, is rather unmistakable. Consequently, I had to ensure his silence with threats of what might happen to both himself and his niece. Chris said, You got wise to Vogel, I suppose, by having his agent trailed from the bazaar back to the travel agency. But how about that laser shot from the Galata Bridge? Did you just spot him by chance that day? Partly by chance, one of the Brotherhood, who was shadowing him, radioed that he was heading toward the bridge from San Sofia. Was it one of you who shot the warning? Yeah, I did. Chris turned to Aslan. Is Herkimer Nutley one of your men? Nutley, said Aslan. You jest. He is one of yours, but a very convincing tourist. Chris shook his head. So the old police chief was genuine. Now the countdown came down over the PA in crisp Turkish, and the workmen scrambled down to the base of the rocket. Chris tried to pump the madman further. My partner and a girl were kidnapped from your New York setup and taken out to sea. Did you intend to put them aboard the Aristides? The scimitar shrugged. No one reached me here, but that is most probable. The captain of the Aristides works were towed. His ship delivered much of the hardware for our rocket. Come, Tote interrupted. It is nearly time. The boys were taken into the clearing again, and Aslan said coldly, 
We have answered your questions. Now you must tell us a few things. Chris's heart thudded. It was now or never. Are you interested in a bargain, he asked. Aslan's slant eyes narrowed. Name it. Our lives in exchange for the treasure. Aslan and Tote exchanged startled glances. The old man's voice came out in a croak. You wish us to seriously believe you know its location? Why else would I offer the deal? I want to go on living for a while. My partner can make his own decision. It happens we spotted the treasure site before we were shot down. Dr. Tote stroked his pointed chin and looked at Geronimo. Is your friend speaking the truth? The Apache grinned coldly. He won't last long if he isn't, will he? We found it all right, and you can count me in on the deal. What are your terms? Aslan asked Chris. We lead you to the treasure. You turn us loose. But first, untie our hands and give us each a horse so we can get out of the valley alive without being tracked down and chewed up by your hounds. You can keep us covered, of course, till you actually have your hands on the treasure. As for letting us go, you'll have nothing more to worry about from the CIA anyway once that rocket blasts off. There was a long silence as Tote and Aslan considered Chris's offer. Yavol, I am in favor, Tote said at last. Aslan nodded. Peck ye, we have nothing to lose. They are not armed. At the first sight of treachery, they will die most unpleasantly. Well, bully for you, said Chris. I'm sure we can depend on your word of honor. Naturally. Aslan's bearded lips twitched in a cruel smile. But then you have no other choice, do you? He barked an order, and two janissaries untied the boy's hands. Chris muttered something in Apache as he chafed his rope-sore wrists. Suddenly, he raised his right arm, pressing it against his side on the way up. Boom! A thunderous echo shattered the night as the curfew grenade exploded. Before any of their enemies could recover from the shock, the boys had leapt into the air and kicked their heels together. The exhaust blast from their rocket hopper shoes sent them shooting high over the rocket gantry cone. Below them, men were dropping like ten pins as the dense anesthetic gas billowed over the clearing. Geronimo sent a lights-out grenade streaking down on the gantry cone. There was a dull report from inside. In seconds, all electrical circuitry on the rocket had been shorted out by corrosive gas. It was more than an hour later when the boys finally made contact with Turkish army units. They had been sent out to search the valley in response to Lomax's urgent alert. I'm afraid you may have to wait a while to go inside the scimitar's stronghold, Chris told their captain. Even gas masks won't protect your men against that anesthetic. By the way, you'll find two American prisoners. The next morning at the nearest town, Nebsihir, the teenagers talked to Major Kane and Dr. Purnell. They learned Purnell had unearthed the moon goddess as Sardis, but had kept his find a secret. He had deciphered enough of its inscription to guess that the treasure was located somewhere in central Turkey and had enlisted the aid of Major Kane, a pilot, to find it. At Purnell's suggestion, Kane had taken the figure to Professor Grissel, 
in order to get the inscription translated. He had told the professor a false story of how it had come into his possession. Vogel and Captain Lomax arrived at the boys' hotel while the conversation was going on. I contacted the Gerzels to let them know the danger from Dr. Tote was past, Vogel reported. Miss Grizel sends her regards and said to tell you her uncle seems fully recovered. Good, said Chris. There's a job waiting for him down here. He's probably the man the Turkish government will want to take charge of inventorying the treasure of Krasis. Oh, and there was a radio message from Q before I left Istanbul, Vogel went on. Couldn't quite make it out. Something about Vassar 1 asking if you knew of any bookings for exotic dancers here in Turkey. Some sort of teen code, I suppose. Chris and Geronimo both grinned. No, not teen code. Morse code, they murmured. The end. We hope that you've enjoyed this Uvula audio presentation of Mission Moonfire by Jim Lawrence. The opening and closing themes were obviously both the classic rock song Secret Agent Man, composed by Steve Barry and P.F. Sloan, and popularized by Johnny Rivers. The opening song was sung appropriately by the Japanese rock band Secret Agent Man. The closing version of Secret Agent Man was the Hal Leonard arrangement, which I think is mostly used for marching bands. That version was played by the Discovery Plus Concert Band. Please feel free to write us and tell us what you think at uvulaaudio at uvulaaudio.com. You can also become a Facebook fan of Uvula Audio. Just do a search for Uvula Audio on Facebook, or you can do it from the main Uvula Audio webpage. As usual, check out our Cafe Press website for t-shirts, etc. For other Uvula Audio titles, please go to our website at www.uvulaaudio.com. We are listed on iTunes, and you can subscribe and download our podcasts for free from there. If you like our podcast, please feel free to tip us whatever amount you may like using the secure PayPal links at uvulaaudio.com. From all of us at Uvula Audio, we thank you. <laughs>